my name is Mildred, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. A very good morning to you. I'm delighted to be here with you. There was a time on Friday when I wasn't sure I was going to make it. What with the weather and broken down planes, I didn't get here till sometime Saturday morning early. So I'm glad to be here, and um, I'd like to thank Steve and the committee for their gracious invitation and their gracious hospitality since I've been here, and to you also for the friendliness with which you greet people like me. I salute you on your 50th anniversary. As I was sitting there yesterday, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could gather all the people together who over these 50 years have come to these conventions and who have benefited by what has gone on here and who truly show us that our common purpose is what this is about. You know, I came here thinking this was all about me and what I was going to get out of it and how it was going to affect me. And in a sense, it's made possible that I get well because we stick to our common purpose. And so I am delighted to be here to share this event with you and to be able to share my experience, strength, and hope with you this morning. So again, thank you, Steve and Karen and Eileen and her group who took me to dinner last night and to Barbara who's been trying to get me out of bed so she can talk to me. (laughs) And um, so... By the way, I do want you to know that we do not in Canada send you all the bad weather that you get. (laughs) I love these newscasts when they say, and the cold is sweeping down from Canada, as if we created it all. Actually, it's not as warm in Canada as it was here yesterday. It was really lovely, but... uh, You know, we don't have all the ice and snow in the world. I just want you to know. I have a friend who was supposed to be speaking at a convention some months ago, and he never got to speak because they canceled the convention. It was a nudist convention. (laughs) Problem was, everybody was comparing, nobody was identifying. So I think it's really important that we make sure that you can identify with me. So I'm going to ask you to participate with me, even though I can't see perfectly. I can see things that wave out there. These lights are very bright. So I'd like to ask you, if you were born on a farm in Saskatchewan, please raise your hand. Nobody. How many here are German by descent? few hands waving. How many here were raised Roman Catholic? A lot of hands waving. Well, not as many as it might be, but some. How many here are the youngest of ten children? See, two or three hands, okay. We're not doing too badly. Now the questions get harder. How many in here spent 15 years in a convent and now are ex-nuns? <laughs> I don't see any waving. How many here married their psychiatrist? 
And he wasn't the 1.7 either. <laughs> How many here have had 38 shock treatments? I tell you, they light up your life. <laughs> How many here have been hospitalized in one mental institution, insane asylum, or psychiatric ward 32 times? How, no takers on that one. How many here have been diagnosed as being schizophrenic, being schizoid paranoid, paranoid schizoid, manic depressive manic, manic depressive depressed? How many here have been diagnosed as having an organic personality disorder, as having a chronic personality disorder? Raise your hands if you've had them all. <laughs> the waving got slower. How many here were tied to the bed? <laughs> I'm going to ask that. <laughs> what are you doing with that, honey? <laughs> I'm going to ask that question again. <laughs> and now take a look around and see if the hands stay up. How many here were tied to the bed and not for fun and frolic? <laughs> okay, I still see a hand or two out there. Okay, some of you are going to have a lot of trouble identifying with the drama of my life, just like I have trouble identifying with the drama of yours. But if I start to talk about the essence of alcoholism, I think then you know wherever I speak. When I tell you that 50 drinks were never enough because one was too many, how many can identify with that? Now there's a sea of hands going up. And it says in the big book, even that is not my problem. It says the main problem rests in the mind. I almost died because I didn't know that. Because I, I thought... What does that mean to me? I thought it meant intellect. And because I never had a problem studying, I never had a problem with using my brain in the capacity of taking in human knowledge, I thought I didn't really understand that. And it came to life for me when a member of the fellowship who'd been around a lot longer than I had said to me, Mildred, it doesn't mean your intellect. It means your soul, your spirit. The medical term for mind is soul or spirit. And it then life opened up to me because the big book opened up to me. You see, there are statements in the big book that don't make sense. And I want to tell you how important this was to me because in all these hospitalizations and all this therapy that I had had, and I had some very good people looking after me. But on November the 11th, 1966, I woke up in the university hospital on the seventh floor, which is the psychiatric floor, sitting in a wheelchair covered with vomit, crying hysterically. I had been uh, out on the street for a while. I had been in an insane asylum, as it was then known in Toronto, for two weeks. My brother found me. He took me back to the prairies where I had been born and where my family lived. And I was in the university hospital for seven weeks, and they thought I was doing so good they gave me a two-day pass, and when I wasn't back in six days, they sent the police to find me. 
And they found me in the condition that I have described to you. And I must say, as I looked out over the, out over the, um, wheelchair, I saw, in those days I wore a wig, I saw my wig hanging on the corner of the post. I'll tell you, I was a raving beauty. <laughs> I obviously had taken off my wig so I'd have something to throw up in and I had missed on all counts. So you can see what a lovely sight I was. There were two psychiatrists on staff that I'll tell you about. One was Dr. Hoffer, who was the Dr. Hoffer who's mentioned in AA Comes of Age, whom Bill had consulted, because Dr. Hoffer was doing controlled experiments with LSD at that time, and Bill thought that perhaps this could be of use to alcoholics. So Dr. Hoffer knew about alcoholism. And there was another doctor, Dr. Fred Frank, on staff, he was an alcoholic, and he was in AA, and he was sober at the time. And these two went to my doctor, Dr. McCarricker, and said, we think you've misdiagnosed this woman. We think she's alcoholic and should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, Dr. McCarricker was no dummy. He was chief of staff at the hospital. He was chief of psychiatry at the university. He had authored books. He gave lectures around the world. And yet when those two men said, we think you've di misdiagnosed her, he said, oh, we couldn't let her go to AA. It would interfere with her treatment. <laughs> Was he stupid? No. He just didn't know that the main problem rests in the mind. What does that mean to me? It means to me that it's not in the body. It's in the mind. It's in that non-material part of me, that non-physical part of me that is the driver for my life. Those values and thoughts and attitudes and all that stuff that needs to be changed when I come here. Because complying and saying, yes, I'm alcoholic, don't hear me say that it's not in the body, but that's not primarily where it is. And that's why I think there are certain things in the big book make sense only when you hear them in the context of that statement that the main problem rests in the mind. Because it says in the big book, Fred learned that spiritual principles would solve all his problems. Why do I need spiritual principles if drinking is my problem? All I need to do then is not drink. It says also that's what this book is about, to help you find the power greater than yourself who will solve your problem. I thought I had problems like lack of money, no decent husband, no respect, no job by the time I came here and all that kind of stuff. And my sponsor made me read that and read it. He said, you have only one problem. Your problem is your self-centeredness. And I thank God for people like that because they helped me to see. There's another statement in the book that I never understood. Because when I came here, I wanted to fix the outside. And I thought, I'll fix the outside, and I'll get that in place, and then I'll maybe deal with you, God. The book says, when the spiritual malady is overcome, then we straighten out physically, and we straighten out mentally. And, you know, if this problem is simply one of drinking, those statements don't make sense. But I have come to believe that the big book has never steered me wrong. Isn't it an amazing book? How could that book have come to the planet without a power greater than ourselves, guiding the hands of those who put that book into place? 
I will be sober 28 years, God willing, on May the 18th, 19, 2001. And I still pick up that book, and I suppose it will be that till the day I die. And I see the truth there, as if I had never seen it before. And that just gets richer and richer and richer. It's such an amazing work. You know, I think about, in connection with that, I think about what Carl Jung said of Roland Hazard, that though his, though he manifested such disorientation and so much problem in the outside world, that wasn't his problem, as Bill wrote, as Carl Jung wrote to Bill. He said he always knew that his problem was he had separated himself from wholeness. He had separated himself from God in consciousness. And I understand today, I believe that's why my life was such a disaster. That's why it was so painful. And, you know, if separation is really my problem, then connection, of course, is the solution. Going back to consciousness, and isn't that what our book says? Step 12 says that if you do these steps, what you will get is the result you will wake up spiritually. You will wake up to another level of being. And what did Bill say? He said we could be rocketed into the fourth dimension, into a level of seeing that isn't about the material things that I spent so much time getting people to do what I wanted, getting the outside fixed, because if I could just get it the way I wanted, I wouldn't have to drink. So I thought. Well, how did I get to this place? You know, the book says some of us have to be mangled, badly mangled, it says, before we will accept this way of life. That's me. How many of you out there would identify with that? In some way or other, we're all in that state. I don't think anybody gets up on a nice sunny morning and says, I think this is a good day to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. My life is going so well. See, bottom looks different. That's the only thing. Some of us have to go a little further to the garbage dump, and some of us go all the way. That's that's just the way it is. By the time I got here, I was in what the book calls a state of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I can tell you that my mom and dad did not raise me to get to where I was May the 18th, 1973. Let me tell you how I got there. I never felt at home. How many identify with that? I never felt I belonged in my skin. Anybody identify with that? I, You know, it seemed to me that I had probably gotten here by some mistake in celestial navigation. <laughs> and that I really should be somewhere else. It was as if I had had an implant that said, you're a girl, you're a nobody. You'll never amount to anything. Nobody cares about you. You're all alone. And that was confirmed for me by my experience when at about the age of three and a half, I realized that the person I loved most in this world was, as they said in those days, retarded. They didn't know anything about learning disabilities or knew very little in the educational world. Psychology and psychiatry were very new sciences, and um, 
They kept her in grade three till she was 16. The community, you know, children can be very cruel. They called her dumb Dora. And she went to the place where she knew she could get comfort. To me, because I loved her. And she'd crawl into bed and she'd cry. And she'd say, Mildred, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? And I would cry with her and I would say, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? I tell you that not to elicit sympathy because I think our lessons are simply our lessons. And I can see where this fits in my life. I needed to learn some things. And this was the way I believed that I was to learn these things. Uh, I tried to fix it. I tried to fix her. My goal in life was to see that she would stop crying and she would be happy. And so I did what, what a child might. I had my ways. I thought if my brothers would only dance with her. I told them to dance with her and they didn't. You know, they were teenagers. She was an embarrassment to them at that age. Uh, you know, I gave my family my mar- their marching orders. They didn't listen to me. And what I did was I put up the walls against them. And I felt that I was right. I mean, after all, Dora is crying herself to sleep at night. That's the only thing that matters in the world. You've got to help me with it. And they didn't. You know, and I'd like to tell you right now, lest I forget, my family was not cruel. In subsequent years, I began to realize they loved her every bit as much as I did. But when I was a little girl, we didn't talk about stuff. Nobody ever mentioned, we never, at least not in my presence, and perhaps in those days the philosophy was children should be seen and not heard. And so I kept everything in, and I became very angry, and I became very depressed, and I became very fearful. And you know what? I didn't have language for those words. It was only in Alcoholics Anonymous that I realized how fearful I was because what I did was I developed a facade. I crawled behind my walls and I wouldn't let anybody in. But the awful part is I couldn't get out either. And so I lived inside those walls in the pain and misery and the self-pity that all that generated. And I can tell you the outside world didn't care. And the outside world really didn't know what was going on. I tried God. We were raised Roman Catholic, and I do not remember what some people say they were taught, that God was a fearful God. I don't remember that. What I heard was what I needed to hear, that God was love and that God had all power. Well, I've got my answer. I mean, I need somebody who loves Dora and who loves me, and I need somebody who's got the power to do what I want. And so I ask. Any of you ever do that? You ask for what you think you ought to have, and nothing happens. I did not turn against God because I was raised in Saskatchewan. I don't know what the sunsets and the sunrises are like here, but I know that the sunsets in Saskatchewan are absolutely spectacular. On any given night, the sky is covered with beautiful colors. And after the sun sets, you can see the stars. And you can see the aurora borealis dancing across the sky. And it certainly seemed to me that a God that could create such beauty, 
I just couldn't understand that he wouldn't do what I asked him to do. I didn't turn against God. God became irrelevant in my life, in a sense. I was confused, like, what is this God about? I know Queen Elizabeth exists, but so what? What if, what effect does she have on the daily working of my life? And that's kind of the category into which I put God. I was a smart kid, and so I went to school, and I always achieved. I think we all need something. We all need to feel somewhere on the planet we, we can do something. And that was my weapon. If you got A's, I got A pluses. If you got A pluses, I made sure that I beat you at that. That was my facade. Now I'll go back to five. I picked up a drink at five. I don't think I became an alcoholic. I think I was an alcoholic waiting to happen. Because when I picked up that drink, I had what I'd like to think of as my first spiritual experience. <laughs> it was an experience so sweet and so amazing. I felt loving. I felt connected. Not only did I feel loving toward you, I felt that you loved me. You loved Dora. There was no problem that I couldn't... There was no problem. There was no fear. There was just this unbelievable feeling of, the book calls it, ease and comfort. And I chased that feeling to the gates of insanity and death for the next 35 years. I know that once I knew what could happen when you drank that stuff that came in a bottle, I never thought sober again. I drank anything I could get my hands on. I drank as much of it as I could. It was only when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I realized there were people on the planet who only drank scotch. <laughs> I didn't care. If it had alcohol in it, I drank it. I found out there were people who chilled booze. I could not for the life of me understand why anybody would chill booze. And so you can see, if you had said to me at that time, This, this stuff is going to take you and it's going to slam you up against the wall until you will wish that you were dead. I would have, I couldn't have heard that. I wouldn't have understood it. You see, there was alcoholism in my family. My parents were Americans. My, my maternal grandfather died in Teutopolis, Illinois of alcoholism in a pool of his own blood. I had one uncle who was shot and I had another one who was who was killed in a swimming accident. And it was all because of, of booze. And currently I had a brother. He just died about a year ago who was sober 49 years when he died. But when I was a little girl, I saw him on his downward path. Did that talk to me? Not at all. Because the overriding factor was there's something that I can put into my body which makes me feel good, and that's what I chased. I didn't care about the taste of the booze or where or what or whenever. That was irrelevant. If I had to drink vanilla, I drank vanilla. And I'll tell you, 28 fluid ounces of that stuff go down very hard. 
I remember once in the convent I had gulped down 28 fluid ounces of vanilla. And that night the mother superior kept saying to the house sister, she said, you must have baked cakes today. And the house sister kept saying, no, I didn't, Mother Superior. It was just me in the corner belching. <laughs> she was smelling the vanilla. And I drank perfume. My personal favorite was Chanel Number no. 5. Yeah, Wu is right. So, at 18, I went to a convent. Now, if you heard what I said, part of you will be surprised. I didn't like women, and I was as alcoholic as they come by the time I'm 18. I didn't really understand what I was doing. Everybody said, don't go, including the nuns. They didn't want me. <laughs> but guess what? I wrote to the United States because I knew... If you were going to find a swinging convent, it wouldn't be in Canada. It would be in the United States. And guess what? They said, we'll take you. And so there was a community up in Canada, and that's where I joined. I was drunk the night I entered, which says a lot about me, but it says more about them, I think. And for the next 15 years, I was there doing my thing. You know... As I said at the beginning, I was diagnosed with all these illnesses, with all these psychiatric illnesses. Nobody, I guess, could see. You know, in those days, we wore the white and black, the big habits and the, you know, the big stuff and the big rosaries and crosses and all that stuff. And, you know, you walk around pie-eyed. It's kind of hard to imagine that that person has been into the booze. And so when I'd go to the doctors, you're hearing voices. Oh, yeah, I guess you're having problems in this area. And you're depressed. Yes, I guess you're having problems in that area. They diagnosed me, but nobody ever mentioned booze. So for 15 years, I stayed in the convent drunk. And uh, that's a challenge all of its own, which I won't get into this morning. But if you're a red-blooded alcoholic, because sometimes people will say to me, well, how do you do that? Oh, please. If you are an alcoholic, you know how you do that. You lie, you cheat, you steal. You forget that you have a vow of poverty. You forget that you have a vow of obedience. And you, no, I didn't ever forget that I had a vow of chastity, come to think of it. <laughs> Just to set the record straight. On January the 6th, 15th, no, January the 10th, 1966, I had my dispensation. Mother Superior asked me if I was happy. Well, is anybody happy? So we wrote to Rome, and we got my dispensation, and I had my secular name back, and I had my secular clothes back, and I was dispensed from the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and I was sick enough despite the fact that for 15 years I had spent those at university studying psychology and theology and all kinds of things, and I didn't know the first and most simple truth that I need to know, and that is that the problem is never outside me, that it is always inside me, and that if I don't deal with that, with that business of connection, with putting myself right with God, sounds strange, doesn't it? You're talk I'm talking from the standpoint of an ex-nun 
who spent 15 years in a convent, six hours a day on spiritual exercises, and I'm telling you that I don't know that I have to be put right with God. And yet that was the very truth. I didn't know anything about that. I thought that you changed the outside, and now I'm there, and I'm going to whisk myself out into this secular world, and some nice man is going to find me, and I'm going to be just fine. That's how I thought. In the next ten months, I can tell you I saw the sewers of the world. You know, if you can imagine how you feel, imagine if you've been in a convent 15 years, and you've lived as I had lived, and now you're outside, and you're out at the bars, and I won't go into the details, but I lived in the sewers. I found the lower companions, and then I became the lower companion. Three weeks after I'm out of the convent, I'm in jail. It may not impress you, but it sure impressed me. <laughs> and, of course, I thought I was bad. And the more I thought I was bad, the more I drank. And then it was November the 11th, 1966. And four days after that incident that I told you, Dr. McCarricker relented, and he sent me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to my first meeting and continued to go in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Cease, whom I understand you've had here to speak at your conventions, was my first sponsor. Cease is now sober, 49 years, still going strong. And uh, so it was not for lack of good sponsorship, but it was that I couldn't hear. I had my own plans about how life should get fixed. My brother had gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. He was fine. So when Dr. McCarricker said, you go to Alcoholics Anonymous and see what happens, I didn't know what you had to do here. That's why I shudder when I hear people say, just don't drink and go to meetings and everything's going to be fine. I would have died if that's all I had done. That's what I was trying to do. I wasn't drinking. I did go to meetings. And I didn't change. And when, you see, the book says the drinking of the alcohol is only the symptom. Oh, my God, does that ever ring true with me. You see, therefore, stopping drinking alcohol changed nothing. Three weeks in AA, I liked it. <laughs> and then reality set in. I was no different than I had always been. The fears and the sadness and the depression and the rage and the self-pity and all that stuff were there. I didn't know how to behave. I didn't know how to do relationship. I didn't know how to act. I was five years old mentally. Remember, I picked up a drink at five. And I got my spiritual experience at five. And I knew that that's how you could do it. Even though all the experience to the contrary said there's too high a price to be paid, I kept doing it. You know, whether it was five minutes or ten minutes where I felt better, and then into the blackouts and the God knows what, I still kept doing that. So I feel that emotionally I just didn't grow. You know, while my, while my colleagues, while the people I had gone to school with, they were out there doing their life, taking the ups and downs and learning some things, I hid in the bottle. If I felt good, I drank. If I felt lousy, I drank. I drank all the time. And so... I was like a crippled person. And so now I'm trying to live sober, and I'm not doing anything because I had developed a taste for speed somewhere along the way. 
And I knew there was such a thing as sleeping pills, and I knew there was such a thing, Valium was the going thing at that time. And as a nun, it was no problem going to the pharmacist and saying, you know, I'm working very hard. I need some energy. And he'd supply it. And then I'd go and I'd say, I need to sleep, and he'd supply that too. I got whatever I wanted. And then I got it from illegal sources, and I sat in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous five and a half years. I did it not your way. I did it my way. See, I always know best. Remember, I told you as a child, I knew how to do things, and therefore I couldn't hear what I was told. And I did it my way. And I can tell you when I do it my way, when I say my will be done, not thine, I'm in trouble. And that's why I had to be badly mangled. Not because the universe is ugly, but because I wouldn't listen to the lessons that were being given me. And I kept saying, it has to go my way. And I got worse and worse. And after five and a half years of Alcoholics Anonymous... You know, they used to even let me go on 12-step calls. There were no women sober in Prince Albert at the time, and so they let me go out to the women's jail. Cease now says, I carried the disease rather than the message. (laughs) (laughs) After five and a half years, I walked out of AA. And I think it's a credit. It's a credit to the compassion of people in Alcoholics Anonymous that despite all the disgusting things I have done in AA, because after that five and a half years, I drank again. And just like you keep the bad penny kept coming back and I'd fall asleep in meetings and I'd throw up in meetings and I'd come here drunk and nobody ever said, get away and stay away till you're clean. They said, keep coming back. And I somehow or other, there was something that lured me I know now what it is. It's not one human being helping another human being. The ABCs tell us that that's not possible. You can't fix what's wrong with me. What you can do is do what I'm doing this morning, sharing my experience, strength, and hope. And as I'm reliving my experience, you get to relive yours, and it's a perfect system, isn't it? It's just amazing. And so... People said, keep coming back, and I kept coming back. I was drinking again, and now I went to a place. You see, all this time, booze had done something magical for me. Booze had allowed me out of the cage. You see, fear and sadness and depression and self-pity, nobody wanted anything to do with me, and I hid in my cage because I was basically scared of life. When I drank, I got to get out of my cage. And I stayed out of that cage again until, you know, bad things would happen and, and away I'd go. And uh, now it, there was no more functioning. Up to this point, I had functioned because when I drank, I lost my fear. And when that fear was gone, I could do things. But the last year and a half that I drank, there was no more functioning. We lost everything. I should tell you that that man, Dr. Fred Frank, he's now dead. I thought he did me such a great favor in getting me to AA. He deserved a reward, and I gave him one. I married him. (laughs) 
I have a friend in California who says our neuroses were complimentary. The rocks in his head fit the holes in mine. <laughs> and I think that's probably very true. Anyway, I did a year and a half of that. The blackouts, the convulsions, the, the um, seeing things, hearing things. One time I was in somebody's car and I said, you know, I really like that song that's playing. But I said, I wonder why they're playing it four times in a row. And he said, I don't have the radio on. <laughs> That's when they turn the vehicle right around, take you back to the psych ward. Anyway, at the end of that time, I wound up in a psych ward. And that was no big news because this was my 32nd hospitalization. And I should tell you that in the last 27, almost 28 years, I have not been hospitalized once. I have never had to see a psychiatrist. Isn't that amazing? Other than the one I saw at the hospital I went to at first. It was May the 18th, 1973. And there were two men sitting at the foot of my bed, and they really were there. <laughs> one was the psychiatrist who was looking after me, and one was the private detective who had been hired to find me. I would go traveling when I got drunk in those days, and God knows what happened. Anyway, I was in this psych ward, unable to move. And uh, on Sunday morning, May the 20th, I had what I can only believe was the reaching of my bottom. Because I, what makes it possible for long-term recovery to be available to me? I think it's only with bottom because, you know, I saw a lot of hands go up. A lot of people stood up last night when it was, are you sober one year, 11 months, 10 months, etc. What makes it possible for us to keep going? I think it's only that business of bottom. And to me, bottom is, I'm out of plans. I know clearly that the way I'm doing things doesn't work. And that morning, I knew that I was out of people. I was out of plans. I was out of people. There wasn't another person that I could manipulate or use. My family didn't want me. Friends had said, we'll call the police. I was a nasty piece of work, I'm telling you. And um, I sat there and I knew that I had reached my end and I made a decision. I made a decision to take my own life and I wasn't kidding. I was going to do it. And it was at that time that I had a spiritual experience, which I can only describe to you as unbelievable because... It was as if a giant hand reached into me and removed from me the compulsion to drink and take drugs. And in these 27 years and 10 months, I have never once had that compulsion. As I sat in that bed that morning, I knew that the compulsion was gone and that if I would do what I was told, if I could find somebody, that I would never have to drink again. I know we take it one day at a time. I'm just telling you how that felt. I knew that something had been removed from me and that if I would cooperate with it, I could live with that new freedom. You see, I don't think that some of us get sober. We just don't get sober always when other people think we should. See, I think the mystery is this, that God's grace is offered all the time, not just sometimes. And I think the mystery is that we don't know. It sure looked to a lot of people in my life 
as if I needed Alcoholics Anonymous, as if I needed the grace of God, and indeed I did. But you see, I think grace is something that we can't earn. We can't create it, but we must accept it. And up to that time, I had been refusing it because I wanted God's power to operate on my behalf according to my will. And I had to learn, with whatever lessons I had to accept, that it doesn't work that way. And that morning, obviously, my soul was ready. And I said to that power, I don't know how to live. I knew that clearly. You'll have to send somebody. And as I stand here, I swear I hadn't the words out of my mouth and there was a rap on the, on the door. And a man stood there. And he said, I saw you at breakfast. He said, are you alcoholic? And I said, yes. Do you want to make something of it? <laughs> I said the compulsion to drink was removed, nothing else. He said, do you want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I won't tell you what I told him, because I hated you. And actually, I hated God. I didn't know what I had been confronted with that morning. He said, would you go to Donwood? Well, I went through my file, and I hadn't been to Donwood. And he said, well, that's a hospital. Dr. Bell was a pioneer in the field of, of giving alcoholics good medical treatment. And there was this hospital-slash-treatment center, and he said, would you go there? And I said, well, I guess so. So two days later, he took me. And a series of things began to happen that just proved to me that we swim in grace. All we have to do is say yes to the present moment and let it in, and it carries us exactly. And I believe it presents us with the people. It presents us with the assistance. It presents us with everything that is needed for us. If we'll do the next right thing, take the actions. And so two days later, he took me to the center. Nurse interviewed me and said, yes, you need treatment. But she said, um, uh, you have no money, so we can't take you. And I was very despondent, and we came up the stairs, and we were walking out when I heard this large voice say, stop that woman. Bring her back here and find her a bed now. That was Dr. Bell. He took me in out of the goodness of that grace that was in his life. And I was exactly at the right place to meet the people I needed. I can tell you I've had hundreds of hours of therapy. Spiritual direction, counseling, you name it. Bishops, Jesuits, priests, nuns, doctors, psychiatrists, everybody had a go at me. And the general consensus, at least of what I heard, was they were helping me to analyze my life and to see how my relationship with Dora and my thorny relationship with my mother and all that stuff had affected me, and they were going to help me to think right about it, and then I would act right. And you know and I know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we're taught just the diametric opposite. We have to act ourselves into right thinking. We have to do the next right thing. And through that process, we allow God's grace in. And so I was at the right place. There was a psychiatrist there, not my husband, but uh, he too was drunk by this time. You see, we had lost everything. 
we had lost our home, we had lost anybody that worked with us, we'd lost our cars, we lost our, everything was gone. I had my belongings in a plastic bag, in a plastic shopping bag and a little suitcase. And, uh, uh, this psychiatrist, Dr. Maharaj, I went to him one day to tell him I was going to commit suicide, and he said, Mildred, if you want to commit suicide, go right ahead. He said, if you want to get well, I'll help you. But he said, you've got to do some things. I'll help you. There was another woman who came into my life. See, the way I had lived, I needed a two-by-four on my head. She told me this. She said, you are the meanest, ugliest, most self-centered person it has ever been my misfortune to meet. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I said to her, you can't talk to me like that. I'm an ex-nun. <laughs> she said, just watch me. And she laid out to me the kind of person I was. I didn't fully understand that, but I thank her today. There was a woman who was in the... Um, six months later, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked in because I was living on Skid Row. We didn't have enough to eat. You know, and I came from a German family that said, you get yourself into trouble, you get yourself out. You don't go and ask for anything. And so I got a little job making $2.20 an hour. You know, there we were, two of the best educated people around, and we're sitting on Skid Row. He's depressed, and I'm making $2.20 an hour. Sure doesn't say much for education, does it? at least not for curing the problems or solving the problems that are wrong with us. And uh, six months after this, I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, albeit I hated God and I hated you, and yet I walked in here. I was so lonely and I was I didn't know where to turn and I walked in. And that's when I found out this is not just about one person helping another. This is about when you hold out the hand to me, you are holding out God's grace to me. And I'm holding out God's grace because there's a healing goes on, such as I've never experienced anywhere else on the, in, on the planet. Nobody preached to me, but I'll tell you something happened. In three months, I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's been the most passionate love affair that I've ever had in my life, and I've never lost it. I've done lots of stupid things in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've done lots of mean things. I've done lots of self-centered things, but I've never lost my attachment. I've always come back. And the amazing thing is, I'm always welcome here. And so I was at the right Alcoholics Anonymous group. I'm clean and sober now, nine months, haven't touched the steps. And two fellas at that group they were absolutely right for me. They came to me, and I was talking about not being able to sleep and wondering if I'd always be this poor. And they came to me, and they said, you're too sick to live on the fellowship. You have to do the program. And thank you, Dennis, for those words that you said last night about the fellowship and the program. They said to me, you've got to do the steps. You've got to take this truth inside and let it change you on the inside. And I had a sponsor. I had asked my sponsor, I'll tell you why. She had on gold earrings, she was blonde, and she had on a white suit. And I thought, that's the ideal. That's what I want to be like. I didn't know anything about her. 
But you know what? She was perfect. You know what she told me? I don't remember much that she told me, but I do remember exactly what I needed to hear. She said, you can get well. Your husband may not get well, but you can get well. And I hung on to that. And every time I wanted to back away from what I was doing and have a temper tantrum and go back to my old ways, I'd hear the words she said. Now, the amazing thing about this is, about three months later, guess what? She went and got drunk because she was angry at her husband. Isn't it amazing what happens here? You know, God uses people. Isn't that the truth? You, I'm sure, have seen it here where people have carried a message to you and they themselves couldn't hear the message. You know, I remember a man who was at those meetings and he was one of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous in Toronto. Everybody talked. You'd go to a meeting and they'd say, you know, so-and-so helped me so much. So-and-so gave me a big book. So-and-so took me to my first meeting. And you know, that man died drunk. And that's not a judgment. It's a reality. It's a reminder to me, I better do what I'm saying. You know, because saying it doesn't mean anything. It's how I live my life, as Dennis said so beautifully last night, at my kitchen table. Well, these two fellas, they loved their AA enough, and they loved themselves enough, and they loved their God enough, and they cared enough about me to put themselves out. And they said, you have to do the steps. And another miracle was, I said, I don't know how. Otherwise, I always thought, oh, well, I know more than you do. I've studied more than you have, and I know this, and I know. I was way past that, and I said, I don't know how. And they said, we'll show you if you're willing to do what we say. Be at this meeting an hour and a half early every night, and we'll come and we'll read. And that's exactly what they did for six months. They came an hour and a half early, and they read the book with me, and they told me what to do, and I did it. And, you know, I don't remember a whole lot of intellectual stuff, but one one thing I remember was they showed me how to do my fourth, as it says in the big book. And the miracle of that process was that I saw myself clearly. It was as if the mirror was held up, and for the first time in my life, I was 41 years old at that time. And I had never, honest to goodness, understood who the problem was. And the night before I went to do my fifth step, they told me to sit down and read that fourth step to myself and to my God. And I did that. And as I read it, I remember shouting. Wow, this is good. What was I talking about? I knew who the problem was. I knew that I was the problem, and I knew that if I continued to do the things that I was supposed to do, that I was being told to do, that I would be fine. I didn't know how, but I continued to do the things that I was told. When finished, did my five, six, and seven, eight and nine, started to pay back the money, started to make, you know, the restitution to my family to make amends and so on and so on. And uh, I had no idea how my life would shake down. At one year sober, I heard the voice say, go look in the paper for a job. I am a teacher by profession. I spent my life teaching high school and college and uh, thought I would never teach again. Within three days, I had a job. I was as crazy still, you know, because going through the steps 
shift. You know, I find that when I do the series of the steps, something in me always shifts and prepares me because I change inside and greater good comes. And so I was ready for another thing. And so I got a teaching job and I was teaching emotionally disturbed adolescents. Now, do you think God has a sense of humor? And I had a new sponsor. And I want to talk a little bit about him because it's really the story of my life. I met this man and I knew because after this woman got drunk, all of a sudden I got special. Where can I find somebody that's going to sponsor me? There are no ex-nuns around. If there were, I wouldn't want them. There are no people who've been married to their psychiatrist around, and I'm so special and all this, but that didn't last. I met this man. See, I don't need a sponsor that I can identify with. I need a sponsor that I will follow. The idea, the, the events of our lives don't have to be similar, but I need somebody because the book says, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you will take certain steps. And this man, I wanted what he had because he seemed stable. I was really drawn to him. He spoke at my meeting on Wednesday night, one of the best talks I've ever heard. He's sober 44 years now, and he's as active as he was the day he came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Just fantastic. And um, the very first time we talked, he said, we'll understand something, you and I, that if you are upset... You are wrong. I thought, why did I ask this man to be my sponsor? (laughs) And he said, we won't talk a lot about your problems. If we have to, yes, we'll see what's going on. But he said, we're going to act out the solution. So he gave me something to do, and he told me to phone the next day. Well, I went right back into my old shtick. I phoned him when it suited me, and... uh, he said, did you do what I asked you to do? Well, no, but, but. He said, Mildred, I'm going to say this and say it to you once. He said, I'm going to give you directions. And I want you to take, I'm not going to tell you whether you should get married, whether you should get divorced. I'm not going to run your life. I'm going to give you directions about how to practice the principles that are embodied in the steps. And he said, I will never tell you to do anything that I do not do myself. But if I give you a direction, he said, do it. Or he said, don't ever call me again because you're wasting my time and you're wasting your own. Because you're not going to get well because I talk to you. Oh, so I thank that man today because he was the firmness that I needed. He put up with not sure he was compassionate. You know, I fell apart from time to time, and he and his wife would would put me back together again. But basically, he demanded that I take action. I was in the school system again about a half a year. I didn't know how to teach kids that 16, 17 years old that didn't know how to read. I went to him one day, and I said, you know, um, I'm feeling incompetent. He said, that's probably because you are. He said, where would you get the information that you need to do your, your job? He said, are you earning your money? I said, I don't think so. I don't know how to do this. He said, where would you get the information? I said, well, I'd have to go back to university. He said, well, 
I said, I can't do that. I've got to go to meetings. He said, Mildred, we go to meetings, not to hide out in meetings. We go to meetings to carry the message. We go to meetings to hear the message. We go to meetings to get the courage to do the things we need to do. Of course you're going to go to meetings. But you are also going to clean up your life. See, I didn't want to do the messy business of getting all my transcripts and getting registered at a university. It was easier to sit at a meeting. But he wouldn't let me do that. And I am so grateful, you know, and he'd open the book and he'd show me those places where it said, the demonstration of these principles in our homes and in our lives is what this is about. And I saw him living that way. And so I trotted right after him and did the best that I could. And then I was sober seven years, and I'm in AA, and I'm sponsoring, and I have my sponsor mobile, and I'm, you know, it's an old rusty car. And I pick you up at 7.30, and you at 20 to 8, and so on and so on. And we roll into the meeting. And I'm busy in AA. And people have started to ask me to speak and to speak at conferences and things. And I'm working at my group and I'm, you know, GSR and all these things. And my sponsor knew something was wrong. I'm sitting in my head thinking, look how hard I'm working. I still have the old rusty furniture. I still have the old rusty car. And look, at I'm such a good girl in AA. I should now have the Mercedes. I should now have the big house. I should now have. And look at those people who sit in the back of the room. And I became very self-righteous and very angry. My sponsor said, we are going to do the steps again. And he took me through the steps. And he allowed me the gift of expressing my anger. I was raised in a family where children were meant to be seen and not heard. And all that rage that I had had as a child, it was just buckled down there. And he showed me, you know, how to get rid of this. And, and it was amazing. And uh, I had, you know, I had paid off my debts. I had cleaned up my life. I'd paid off my husband's debts even. And I'm sober seven years. And then we did this process. And one more time, it was as if I had the wind on my back. Real estate was really marching. And the only reason I tell you this, because I had another illusion. I'm unhappy because I'm a girl. I'm unhappy because I don't have the same kind of money that men have. Men have the money. Men have the power. And if I could make money, then I'd be okay. And I've always had this this thing about power. So... I started buying houses. It was purely a God shot. And I made piles of money, and I had the money. And that went on for about 10 years. And I can tell you the lesson for me was this. I heard the lesson in another way. It's not about the outside. Because I had the money. I could do what I wanted. I had the house. I had the custom-designed furniture. I had the red convertible sitting on my driveway. And I also had the heavy heart. It didn't do anything to change what needed to be changed in here. You see, I think when we get onto this path, we think we're giving up something. We think surrender is a trap, maybe. What it is is the gateway to freedom. And freedom is an in inner job. And freedom is an ongoing experience. I'm a lot more free today than I was at 27 days sober. I'm a lot more free today 
because of surrender and surrender and more surrender. So it was a lesson I had to have. My sponsor said, we're going to do the steps again. And we did the steps again, and one more time I changed. And I didn't know what I changed to. I didn't know what was coming, as we never do. But I know this much, that I have never turned to God, that God has not turned to me. I have never changed and released the old stuff that it hasn't made way for something that is better and more peaceful and more loving. And at that time, it became clear to me that I needed to release the job. I was hanging on to my job because I hadn't developed a lot of hobbies and I don't have children. My husband and I had divorced and after we divorced, you know, they say give yourself a year. I didn't do that. I got another man into my life. This poor fellow couldn't stay sober. But I always looked for men who were going to fix my life. See, just because we're an AA doesn't mean everything clears up. I still thought that men had the power and men were going to make me okay. And this man was the assistant to the president of a large company and he was going to fix my life. It's not that way at all. So one day I found myself, you know, I can stay sober. I can teach him how to stay sober, right? Wrong. And one day I found myself standing over him and he's saying, I want beer. And I said, no, you pray. Because I thought if he would just pray. <laughs> I'm sober four years at this time. Nothing wrong with me. He said, I don't want to pray. I want beer. Now, he's shaking, lying down. I'm standing firmly, and I've got his ears in my hands. You're ahead of me. I pounded his head on the bed, and I said, you pray, you son of a bitch. <laughs> he got drunk again, and I went to Al-Anon. <laughs> and I'm so grateful to the people in Al-Anon. Oh, my God, they taught me some wonderful things. So back to 21 years sober. I made a decision one more time because life was painful. I had given up the man a 15 years relationship. You know, I, I was a coward in many ways. I didn't know how to express my feelings despite all the things that I had done in AA. There's still a lot of house cleaning in me to do. I had been in that relationship 15 years, even though I'd left 13 years before, and I think he had too. You know, we were together, we did things together, but we weren't really together. We weren't growing together. And so I said goodbye to that, and I found myself more alone than I had ever been, and I just couldn't see my way out, and life was painful, and I didn't know what else to do. I had done everything that people had told me to do, and one more time, I got to the edge of the cliff and said, I'm out of here. Now, don't be shocked at that. And if you're new in the program, don't hear me say the program doesn't work. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I think this is about life, and it's about what takes place. Meister Eckhart put it this way. He said the soul grows by subtraction. See, we are used to things growing by addition. 
Our bank account gets bigger. Our house gets bigger. We have more of this and we have more of that. And he said, the soul grows by subtraction. See, what I think has happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous and continues to happen every day, there has to be less and less of me and my ego and my self-centeredness. And at that point, I had reached another critical place where I was out of answers. And one more time, as I said, God, I can't do it anymore, I had another spiritual experience. And out of that, I saw page 62 of the big book, which is one of my favorites, where it says, self-centeredness is the root of the problem, not what's going on in my life. My self-centeredness, my wanting my way, that's the root of the problem. And then those words that that just, they're mind-boggling to me. It says, neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much on our own by wishing or trying. We had to have God's help. And then comes, imagine that. I can't do this myself. How does God do it? By me suiting up and showing up and doing the next right thing, you see, because when we get to step six and seven, it says, I give you the good and the bad. I'm out of the judgment business now because I understand I can't fix what's inside me. I don't truly understand what's wrong. I can't grow a tomato. So how would I grow a soul, you see? And I think that's really what step one comes down to is I'm a guest here. I can't conquer this alcoholism by myself, and I can't run the world. It's not who I am. I'm supposed to dance with all the other guests and let this higher power bring us to that place of peace as we do in this succeeding process. And so I had no idea one more time how my life was going to be. Life seemed empty. It seemed... I I can't describe it to you. It was just empty. However, I know enough. I got up in the morning, and I suited up and showed up, and I did the things, and one day the phone rang, and it was a Jesuit saying, we'd like you to come out and give retreats. And I said, Father, you don't know me. I said, you have no idea how many times I've been excommunicated. (laughs) He said, I didn't ask you about that. I asked you if you would come and give retreats. So that opened up a whole new world. So that now I do retreats, I do conferences, and I do seminars outside the program, and all, all kinds of things have opened up to me. What I'm saying is, I couldn't have done it this way. See, I think the hand of guidance, the hand of the higher power that we swim in, this grace is always here. I was reading that magnificent little book this morning, as Bill sees it, in which are some of the letters he wrote. And in one of them he says, happiness is not the goal of this business. It's about learning our lessons on this planet. He's written in there some of their copies of some of the letters he's written. They're absolutely fascinating. You know, it says God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. It doesn't say I'm going to get that without the inner change. There are conditions I have to meet to be happy, joyous, and free. And for me, the condition, of course, is to let go and let life be what it is. Whether the planes are late, the weather is bad, whether I get here, whether I don't, somehow or other, it all works out in the greater purpose. And I'll close by saying, 
I want to tell you about a little bit about Dora because she has been such an important part in my life. You know, I have always, or no, not always, for a lot of years I relied on my intellect. I thought if I could think it through, if I could analyze it, if I could figure it out, I'd be okay. Anybody out there identify with that? Good. Dora never learned to read. She never really learned to sign her own name. She never read a book in her life. She certainly never wrote a book in her life. And yet about five years ago, I was home, and as I was leaving, come here, come here, and I went over to her, and she put her arms around me, and I realized something that day. I realized how lonely people are. And for her, I come from a family, we're not physically huggers. And I realized she didn't marry, she didn't have her own family, she didn't have her own husband, so she was physically starved for affection. And that day I threw my arms around her and I, I held her close and I could feel the love pour from me. It was as if it poured into her bones and it gave her the courage and she said to me, do you still cry yourself to sleep at night? And I said, no, I don't. And she said, I don't either. When I got home to Toronto, I said to my Jesuit friend, what does that mean? He said, don't you get it? God does not need your smarts or her smarts to bring her into a place of acceptance of her life. She was telling you in her own way that she has come to accept her life. And then two years ago, the anniversary is coming up on the 25th, I got a call. Dora was dying. It was the call that I dreaded. And I need to back up just a few months. A friend of mine, whom I had worked, done the 12 steps with, called me one day. She said, my mother just died. And she said, I'm calling to thank you for everything that you have done for me. Well, I certainly hadn't anything, done anything about her mother dying. What I'd helped her with probably was to a greater understanding, whatever, to growth in the spiritual life, I guess. So she knew what to do. Her mother was dying and she was unconscious and she said we sang to her and we stroked her and so on. And she said, I thought of you all the time. Isn't life amazing? I couldn't understand why she told me that. I knew the day I walked into Dora's hospital room why God had provided me with that because I needed it. I didn't know how to help somebody who was dying. As I sat on the plane going from Toronto to Saskatoon, I have to tell you, the coward in me wished that Dora would have died. So I wouldn't have to do whatever I, that I felt I didn't know how to do. I got there and she was still alive. And I got to spend the last 18 hours with her. I walked into that hotel room, and it was as if my friend Linda was there whispering in my ear, saying, go stroke her, go talk to her, go sing to her. And I sang to her all night when I wasn't crying and sang, you are my sunshine, and I talked about our lives, and I prepared her as best I could. About an hour before she, no, 15 minutes before she died, because I'm thinking, 
I wonder if she hears me. Our God is so generous and so kind and so loving. I got the message. I just didn't know I got it. About an, 15 minutes before, she had her jaw hanging, and my sister-in-law said to her, Dora, you can swallow. You don't have to, you don't have to be that uncomfortable. And she responded. And about five minutes before she died, the same thing. And again, when I got home, I was telling my Jesuit friend, and he said, don't you understand? You have your answer. If she could respond to somebody saying, you can swallow, and she did, she heard you all right. And I felt so comforted. I was there. And you know, as she died, it was the most awesome experience of my life. It was the most amazing, most grace-filled moment that up to this point I have experienced. And my brothers and sisters and I, because our parents are gone, we who don't hug a lot, we stood in that room with our arms around us. And out of this silence, my brother said, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. None of them are in AA. He said, you knew what to do. Well, you know what? It's like every other gift that I've received here. It's not from me. It's because I put out something to you, you give me something back. And if I just trust, I get the things that I need to do to give more to somebody either in the program or out. And you know what I realized at that time? That my life had come full circle. You see, I had a very thorny relationship with my mother, and she with me. And I had somewhat of a thorny relationship with my father. And I knew that morning, and I knew subsequently, particularly after I had talked to my Jesuit friend, that I had been forgiven. Because if there was anything I believe that my mother and dad would have wanted for their Dora, they would have wanted someone to be there, to love her and to hold her and to help her on that difficult hour. So what do I have that I haven't been given in the fellowship, in the program, through the gift of service to you? All I've gotten is love and acceptance and and. The acceptance that makes it possible for me to accept God's grace as it's given to me. I don't have anything today that hasn't been given to me through this process. And so I thank you for all that. And for as long as I live to serve Alcoholics Anonymous and to serve the people in Alcoholics Anonymous will always be a great gift to me. I'd like to close with the little story that I think sums up what I've been trying to say. It's the story of the two fish who were under the wharf in San Francisco. And they heard these people, human beings, on top of the wharf, and they were talking about water and the power of water and the beauty of water and the comfort you could get from water. And one fish said to the other, that's something. He said, we should find out where we can find some water. And we could get all those benefits. 
And the second fish said, I agree. He said, I hear that they have water in the Sea of Japan. And the first fish said, let's go. And they swam across the Pacific Ocean, only to find as they reached the Sea of Japan that they had always been in the water and the water had always been in them. And when I heard that story, I thought, is that not what the chapter to the agnostics is saying when it says the day will come when you will have to make the decision, not me for you or you for me, but each one of us, either God is everything or nothing. And if God is everything, then I would say, I have always been in the power and the power has always been in me. And that is my blessing and my gift and my prayer for you and that we can all grow in that realization. You've been a wonderful audience. God bless you and thank you.